This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is a, a good friend who uh, I run into occasionally, usually in the other side of the world, because he's from Australia, Michael Bird, who is Academic Dean at Ridley College. Michael, welcome to Dallas. Well, hello, Daryl, and thank you for having me. Well, it, 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 it's kind of strange. Usually when I'm around you, I'm the odd accent out, yeah. and now it's all reversed. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I, and I heard you've you've done the proper Texas tour. You went to Waco. Yes, I was a little bit concerned why my wife wanted to go to Waco. I just assumed that she was a big fan of the Baylor Bears or something. Uh, turns out there's these um, silos uh, with Magnolia, where we then walked around and uh, spent copious amounts of money on things I would not be naturally inclined to purchase if left to my own devices. Yeah, well, I understand, and, and uh, what can I say? I'm sure everybody understands exactly all that you're alluding to, but uh, we're glad you could make it to Dallas. Uh, Michael's uh, moving his way through the United States, having co-authored a book on, what, the New Testament in its world? Is that yep, the right title? That's correct. And uh, with Tom Wright, and uh, we have our annual professional meetings that come up annually, and so he's here for that. And so uh, so uh, we're just glad to have you here in the States. Yeah, it's great to be here at DTS. You know, I've met, I've met graduates from all over the world. Some of my colleagues are DDS graduates, <laughs> so it's great to be here. Well, so let's, let, me, let me begin at, at the normal start. How did a nice Australian guy like you get into a gig like New Testament? I mean, how does that happen? Well, the, the, the short answer is I failed systematics. Okay. That's what happened. Uh, no, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, well, I mean, I grew up in a non-Christian home. Uh, I, I, I was not part of a church-growing family. Everything I knew about Christianity growing up, I learned from Ned Flanders. Mm. That's pr- was pretty much my entree okay. <laughs> into Christianity. Uh, when I was 17, I joined the Army, uh, of all things, and I got invited to go to church for the first time ever, and mm. I, I was expecting just a bunch of moralizing geriatrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what I got. Mm. There were some very nice people, some uh, wonderfully friendly people who loved Jesus, who loved me, and I heard the good news of the gospel. And, you know, as I grew in my faith, I wanted to know more about the Bible, more about God. So I began studying, and I loved it. And I thought, well, I've got to go to seminary. And I was thinking initially about becoming a, a, a army chaplain, but it mm. became clear that my gifts were far more on the academic side. And I then, you know, did some some great some studies at, uh, at, at Malian College and then University of Queensland, specialized in uh, New Testament, mm. uh, because I was, you know, been rather keen on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the best places to do it. And that's kind of how I ended up in that discipline. Oh, wow. So, okay. So I was going to ask you where your training was. So you walked us through that. So that's nice. So you've ended up uh, writing literally um, all over the New Testament. Uh, yeah. And But one of the things that you're most known for, I think, is um, – and probably where your uh, initial 
uh, contribution was was in interacting with what has been called the new perspective, which um, we normally on the table are not dealing with uh, topics that are so directly uh, mm. theological and New Testament oriented, but in this case we're doing so because obviously I would say that the discussion on the new perspective is probably one of the most um, – I'll say this neutrally um, – Discussed areas of Pauline theology contentious. today. Contentious. Contentious. Contentious, yes. Well, uh, and yes, there's a back and forth that goes on that's yeah. much like uh, the Australian Open. And so, yeah. um, uh, so, so let's talk about kind of why you decided to enter into that conversation and what do you see involved in that conversation? Yeah, well, it was, it was a little bit odd for me to do it because like you, Daryl, I'm, I'm mainly a gospel scholar. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, Paul rocks, but Jesus reigns. Exactly right. That's always been my motto. So I, I, love, I love spending my time in the gospels, particularly the synoptic gospels, mm-hmm. that type of thing. But because I also have a reformed pedigree, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like I get dragged into all these Pauline debates. And mm-hmm. I find Pauline studies is a bit like the mafia. Mm-hmm. Every time you think you're out, they just drag you back in. Yeah. Paul kind of looks over Jesus' shoulder, doesn't he, in, 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 in yeah. a canonical perspective. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I, I, there was all this you know, debate going on, particularly I think in the 90s and the early noughties, and it was about the new, this new perspective on Paul, what it was, and you know whether it was spawned from the armpit of Satan himself or uh-huh. something along that line. Now, the problem with the new perspective is I think there were some great insights to be made, particularly on the the Jewish character of Paul, the sociological dimension uh, to Paul's doctrine of justification, how you can bring in the the church and ecclesiology. But there probably were some overstatements made as well, particularly Mm -hmm. the idea that works of the law simply refers to the boundary markers Mm -hmm. of Judaism. Uh, Maybe emphasizing the the sociological, or you might call it the horizontal dimension, a little bit too much, Mm -hmm. and kind of discounting or minimizing the the vertical, the relational aspect with God. And I think Howard Marshall put it well. He said, the new perspective is generally correct in what it affirms, but often wrong in what it denies. Mm -hmm. And you also have to add that scholars like uh, E.P. Sanders, James Dunn, and N.T. Wright, they did somewhat evolve over the course of their career, and they did nuanced things. And you you see that particularly, I think, in Dunn, and certainly in in, in Wright as well. They, they, They do kind of mature in their thinking and and they, they end up moving away from some of the um, slightly unguarded statements. Uh, one, one, one thing I know with Tom, 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 Tom paints on it with a, 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 on a big canvas with a thick brush, mm-hmm. and he often doesn't add in some of the details mm-hmm. that are very crucial and also like a shibboleth mm-hmm. to certain political tribes, certain mm-hmm. theological tribes. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't do that, he cops a lot of flack. But when he actually breaks it down in detail, uh, I tend to think it's a lot more commendable and formidable and defensible as a position. Okay, so let me let me go through uh, some of the features of this and just get your reaction. And here I'm thinking less of the new perspective per se as trying to explain why the new perspective discussion emerged. And historically what happened, of course, is – and this goes way back – is that Judaism is characterized as a religion of legalism yeah. and, uh, and a religion of works. And one of the things the new perspective did was to raise questions about whether it's quite that simple. Mm. Um, and the way I like to get at that question is to actually step back historically and look at uh, the Maccabean War. 
and what it represented. Mm. So the Maccabean War, for those of you who don't know, was um, was a battle that really led to the survival of Judaism mm. because the Jews were successful in beating off, if I can say it that way, the influx of Hellenism in 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 Israel and when Antiochus Epiphanes really tried to wipe out the religion. Yep. Um, and you ask yourself, if I'm a faithful Jew trying to be Jewish in a largely Hellenistic world, and someone comes in and tries to wipe out everything that is distinctive about, about my faith, what's my reaction going to be to show my faithfulness? And that's, that's the question that I like students to ponder. Yeah. And that reaction is going to be that um, I'm going to rally around the distinctives of my faith. Exactly. Uh, and in the context of a Judaism in the middle of the second century BC, um, we are as 167 to 164 to be more specific. Although you know, at After Effects went a couple of decades longer. Um, Torah is going to be a rallying point. Yeah. And so, you know, if I were to ask you, uh, pretend you were a Jew in the Maccabean period and you had this influx of Hellenism and you were reacting against it, you don't want it. Anyone who reads the first chapter of 1 Maccabees sees it immediately in terms of what's going on. Um, uh, what are you going to do to show your Jewishness? Yeah, you're going to double down on those areas uh, that they're trying to eradicate. So if the the governing officials say you can't circumcise your children. You're going to, you know, you're going to make sure they're circumcised. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're going to ban Torah, you're going to be people of Torah. So yeah, you're going to. And Judaism, I think, it really does crystallize it. It kind of finds its its um, its second temple identity at that point, where it's defined almost essentially in 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 opposition to Hellenism, mm -hmm. and that's certainly what Paul has inherited, uh, at least when he's you know the Pharisee Saul of Tarsus. That's right. I mean, he, he's trying to protect um, Israel's purity, Israel's capacity to worship God by attacking, by trying to uh, not just excommunicate, but almost exterminate or liquidate in some sense anyone who is contaminating Israel and its distinctive uh, God-centered way of life. So this has two impacts by the time we get to the New Testament. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it explains this um, tight adherence to the law mm -hmm. because um, what you're actually showing – I think if you ask someone who was Jewish at the time what they were doing, their response wouldn't be, well, I'm a legalist and I love the law. Yeah. Yeah. Their response would be, I'm being faithful to covenant. I'm being faithful to the Mosaic covenant which marks us out as a people and this is a way I show my allegiance to God. Yeah, exactly. And the second effect is is that uh, the idea that there could be a peoples formed of Gentiles and Jews operating in the same space would be another challenge to that past. Yeah, exactly. Or if you had Gentiles, they could only be there as guests, mm -hmm. uh, not as not as equals. Mm -hmm. So that you could have God-fearers who you might say could be of a Jewish community, but not fully in it. So they can only come in <clears throat> if they are ver if they decide and are willing to become very much like us. Yep, uh, proselytes. Yep. That's right. And so um, that forms the background of the New Testament. And and what's interesting is when I go through this. 
this historical timeline, if you will, and develop this for students, it isn't like they don't get it. Hmm. Uh, you know, they understand uh, because they've they've watched our own Christian culture yeah. in the face of the world. Mark its make the effort to mark itself out as distinctive by maintaining those things that are more distinctive. Maybe the Benedictine option is one example yeah. of that kind of a sociological move. And they understand, yeah, we're trying we're trying to show that we really are what we claim we are. Yeah. We really believe what we say we believe, and that expresses itself in concrete actions around the things that we value. Yep. And so that's what we see in the early first century. So the new perspective walked into that space and really – I guess I should ask it as a question didn't, – didn't the new perspective at least attempt to try to get people to understand Judaism kind of from within, if I can say yes. it that way? I think for too long um, Judaism was portrayed as the prototype of medieval Catholicism, mm -hmm. so Luther's argument, uh, Luther's um, you know argument with the medieval papacy, was then projected somewhat allegorically back into Judaism, and eventually scholars of Judaism, including Jewish scholars themselves and others, began to protest. This is this is not what Judaism is. And when you read uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you read some rabbinic literature, when you read some other writings, you find there's a far more more complex view of God's grace and benevolence rather than just a work for a reward idea of salvation. So it's too simplistic, it's, or in some cases just flat out wrong to say Judaism was essentially legalistic and Christianity was the antidote to that with its gospel of grace. So so I, if, if I can, I'll, I'll take a ch chance at translating this a little bit. So the hard law gospel contrast of the the Reformation uh, is overlaid onto the first century discussion to some degree, and in the process, we lose insight into what was really going on within Judaism at the time and what the real battles were in the New Testament. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a, a lot of people read the New Testament or they read Galatians and Romans as if the question is, what must I do to be saved? Whereas I think a better question to have at the back of your mind when you read Galatians or Romans is, who are God's people and how do you tell? Mm -hmm. Now, read it with those lens because if you read it with the first question, what, what must I do to be saved, um, that makes sense for Romans 1 to 8, but then 9 to 16 seems kind of like an unnecessary digression. I mean, you know, we've, we've already gone through justification, reconciliation, ethics, a little bit of eschatology, you know, mm -hmm. uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What more do we need? And mm -hmm. okay, yeah, maybe a little thought about, you know, the future of Israel and the end times and chapter 12 verses 1 to 2, a bit of ethics, but after 12 too. I mean, it should be the fat lady singing the final aria. I mean, yeah. there's, there's nothing to see here, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I would argue in, like, you get to Romans 15, where Paul says, welcome one another as the Messiah welcomed you, is exactly the climax of the letter, mm -hmm. where he wants Jews and Gentiles, both Christian Jews and Gentiles, to worship together, to uh, relate to each other, and to accept one another as a symbol of them being uh, the, the new people of God created in the Messiah and with the Spirit. Yes, and so... Um, so as we think about uh, the, the first century situation, one of the things the New Perspective said, which I, I do think is a reflection of the theological reality of the time, is um, Israel entered into a relationship with God on the basis of grace. Yes. 
Um, the covenant that was made with, his, with Abraham in Genesis 12 is not something Abraham said, hey, I want to sign up for this. Yeah. Um, God initiated that action. He chose the people of Israel uh, to make them an exemplary people. He chose Abraham to make – and nothing was done to earn that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then there was this relationship that was opened up on the other end. Now, to say that is not to say, and this is the this is the ha- other half of the conversation, is not to say that in making that move, um, you did not risk, you avoided um, the temptation to move into legalism. Yes. And that's the other half of the equation. So I can I can talk about Judaism as being a religion of grace at its start at its base, without necessarily answering the legalism question, which which is a subsequent kind of question in yeah. terms of sequence. How do you see that? Yeah, I think you could argue that there was this concept of of, of grace in Judaism, where God certainly initiates and sustains the covenant relationship. But there was concerted debate about what was the basis or the nature of that grace. And for me, what this really struck home to me when I was reading a bit of Philo, who was a, a Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, roughly coterminous with, with Paul and Jesus. And he was referring to a debate within Jewish circles about Deuteronomy 9, which is you know precisely where God makes a covenant, not because you are more righteous or any better. And the debate within amongst the Alexandria Alexandrian Jews is whether God's blessings, whether they are given freely or whether they're somehow deserved, Mm -hmm. which goes to show there was a debate amongst Jews themselves uh, about the nature of grace. Uh, Is grace... uh, is, is it given unconditionally? Is it given with some degree of worthiness? And that then that then transfers into debates about Abraham. For example, there are some Second Temple Jewish writings. Off the top of my head, I think Jubilees might be one of them, which talk about Abraham's um, pagan life when he was already a god-fearer, already opposing paganism when he was living in you know modern-day Iran, which somehow makes him worthy to receive the call of God. So you can find different different tiers of Judaism or different wings emphasizing different different aspects. Uh, it's certainly the case that the the Judaism of Jesus and Paul was was not some sort of you know proto medieval Catholicism. They had this idea of grace, God's uh, beneficence, and God's blessings. Uh, but I would say that I think Judaism can become uh, it can put more emphasis on the doing or on the um, the, the, the Torah aspect, the, the nomistic observance under certain circumstances. Everyone agrees that God has given us the law, and that's one thing we do as a response to his grace. But then you get down to sectarian debates about, well, which view of the law do you have to obey? Mm-hmm. Do you follow the Pharisees? Do you follow the Essenes, the Qumranites? So whose view of the law counts? Whose calendar counts? Because you get the calendar wrong, mm-hmm. you're literally observing every day on the wrong day, yes. every festival. So it's in sectarian debates. And then if you add eschatology, okay, if there's going to be an age to come, 
who is going to enter that age to come? Is it going to be all Israel, or will it only be the righteous? Because, you know, during the Maccabean period, some some Judeans threw their lot in with the Hellenizers. That's right. And they abandoned. Are they going to be in the age to come? That's right. I'm guessing not. So if you add a bit of eschatology, there can be an emphasis on the doing of the law. And then finally, when you're talking about rights of entry for outsiders, and, uh, and I think this is certainly applicable to Paul, um, what must people do to enter into to this covenant if they are Gentiles. So those three areas, sectarian debates, eschatology, and and rights of entry uh, for outsiders, when you get into those contexts, even with the emphasis on grace, you can still see a drifting towards some some nomistic emphasis on doing of the law, even though that's not ultimately uh, completely uh, against the idea of grace. It's then how the grace works out and relates to each individual person. So as if that wasn't complicated enough, mm. add another layer, which is that we're in a transition in the program of God from a Christian point of view, which is that whereas we were relating before Christ came to God, primarily by means and through the law, because that was the way um, the people of God were kind of um, being managed, if I yep. can say it that way. Um, it's a stewardship. Now we come along with Jesus, who in the midst of doing what he is doing is saying, now if you respond to me, God is going to give you the Spirit of God. Yep. And, and so everything that was previously external is now going to be internalized. Um, this is an evocation, obviously, of promises tied to the New Covenant, which is eschatological from yeah. a Jewish point of view, et, et cetera. So that layer goes on top of that. So when you're no longer relating just to the law, but now you're relating to God through an internal experience with the Spirit of God, all of a sudden, <laughs> the the card game that you're playing has changed. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That there there is a shift. There is a transition that takes place. Uh, you see this initially with Jesus. He says, "Look, you know what marks you out in uh, in being part of God's covenant people is no longer adherence to the Torah. It's your allegiance to me, mm-hmm. which is an amazing claim uh, to make. It's, it's it's an astounding claim. But Jesus says that you know, it's it's how you respond to me. I mean, the best story of that is the uh, where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, mm-hmm. where he says, "You know, what must I do to get eternal life?" And Jesus says, "You know, well, you know the commandments." And and the rich young says, "Oh, fantastic!" And then Jesus pulls a Columbo on him. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Columbo? Darryl. I do remember, remember Columbus, Columbus, the yeah. detective, yeah, yeah. and he goes, "Oh yeah, just one thing, yeah, <laughs> just <right>. one thing." <laughs> and uh, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. So keeping the Torah of God is not enough. You need to have, uh, you need to follow Jesus uh, as well. And that completely changes the card game because there is a new center in, in God's covenant plan in God's uh, saving design. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. 
Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. This is uh, this is an irony and it's an aside, but I can't avoid noting it as what since you mentioned the rich young ruler. I really love that passage. I love to to talk about that exchange and say to my students, now if I asked you an exam, what does it take to be saved? And you gave the initial answer that Jesus gave, would you yeah. flunk that? Would I flunk you on that yeah. exam? Because what actually happens is as a result of the totality of the answer is it isn't that the goal has changed, which is to love God and love your neighbor. That's yeah. still the goal of where scriptures designed to take us ultimately but the way we get there mm. has has shifted in terms of well it isn't just the commandment by itself now by being allied to Jesus and by receiving what he's able to give us we are now made capable of doing what is being asked of us yeah and in the midst of that then uh, able to live out a distinctive uh, Christian life now that was an aside that didn't have no that that's it, perfectly right I think that's perfectly the whole thing's right. flipped that the uh, that the Torah is not set aside and, you know, like put in the dumpster, uh, the Torah is fulfilled when we follow the example of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and have a life led by the Spirit. If you do that, you fulfill the law. So it's not the law's nullification, it's the law's fulfillment that we should be interested in. And the landing place then becomes the love of God and the love of others in such a way that is distinctive, that shows the character of God by the way we live and the way we engage. Yep. That's a whole ethical, that's a whole other podcast. Oh, yeah. But that's but that's actually an important point because sometimes what we do in, in conservative circles is we sever the salvation experience from the point of why it is that God saves us. Mm -hmm. In other words, God doesn't just save us simply to get us to heaven and give us, you know, this protective uh, soteriological bubble that we yeah. live in until we get to heaven. No, He's actually in the process of making us into a certain kind of person yeah. who responds to God in a certain kind of way. Um, okay, so let's 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 pick up the discussion. One of the things that that has struck me about the new perspective discussion. This is my this is my take when I when I get critical of some of what is said, um, is this. Uh, I, I think they're very right to get us to the point of thinking through what was Judaism like in the first century, yep. and that it's not ex exclusively a discussion about legalism. It becomes a discussion about legalism, but it's not exclusively a discussion about legalism. That's the first point. But the second point is that in the midst of emphasizing the corporate, which certainly in the West we tend to under. Yep. develop. Um, everything's about me and my God, and we don't think corporately near enough. And the New Testament's thinking corporately all over the place. Yep. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in the midst of doing that, somehow the significance of the Spirit of God in the midst of this conversation, informing this broad people of God, um, I'll say it this way, gets understated. My own take on particularly the debate that has existed, the contentious debate that's existed between um, Tom Wright on the one hand and John Piper on the other, has been that the role of the Spirit of God as kind of the, the bridge in that conversation yep. has been minimized. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't really speak up for either of them. Okay. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're 
they're both scholars who can defend themselves. But I mean, there's there's a number of different you know uh, lacuna or different things. If you added, mm-hmm. uh, I think both sides uh, could do a bit better. So on the new perspective side, I think they you, you can say yes, there was grace in Judaism, but there was enough diversities within it to say that some aspects could be nomistic. And then on say the more conservative reform side, uh, I think they they do need to recognise as well that you've got the spirit creating this new people mm-hmm. uh, who's who's going to be there through you know given by Christ the dispenser of the spirit and that does change the game and that then the categories they're operating may, may not necessarily be the ones that later developed in Protestant dogmatics but certainly I think yeah both sides could imbibe a bit more uh, notion of the spirit there and its prominence so so this top layer that we're talking about that changes the game so we're not just talking about my relationship of God and law which is where the debate tends to be focused, mm. understandably, since Judaism's the given, um, it moves into a new stewardship. Now, I'm going to use a term in a, in a completely neutral and yep. less theological system way, but what, what everyone, reformed or otherwise, called a dispensation in the proper sense of the term, a yep. stewardship. Yep. There's a shift of stewardship because a new element has been injected into the conversation made possible by Christ that did not exist up to that point because this is the eschatological layer. Yep. Oh, that's, that's, that's exactly right, and uh, I know Tom Wright's definitely very big on that. For him, and certainly in Paul's theology, mm-hmm. it's the coming of Christ and uh, the bigging, uh, the, sorry, the giving of the Spirit uh, is very much what is reshaping the idea of Judaism as it's coming forth. That you know, when we worship God, we're going to think about Jesus in the center of that, mm-hmm. and that's why you get you know, like the Christ hymn of uh, you know, Philippians 2 and all that. But also very prominent there is is the Spirit, mm-hmm. and particularly in places like Romans 8. And it's the Spirit being poured out that is this, this moment of eschatological fulfillment. And it's also the proof that even these Gentiles belong to God. Yeah, and if we were to connect that to Pentecost, uh, Acts 2, what we see are the disciples waiting for an enablement and a capability mm-hmm. which they previously did not possess. And that's an important idea because sometimes in some theological systems that are emphasizing continuity, the idea that the that Pentecost is this injection of a new how I say this, reality for the yep. people of God is um, I'll say I'll say it gently is understated. Yes. Well, no, I think you're right. There has to be something new in the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I, there are some people, I think particularly in the new perspective, prefer to talk of a, of a renewed covenant. Yes. Um, yeah, I understand where they're coming from. That's partly correct. But there is something new stuff that wasn't there before, and this is what you know the prophets are pointing to as well. Whether it's Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they you know talk about God giving you a heart of flesh, mm-hmm. so you can finally, fully, and truly. In contrast okay. to a heart of stone. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there is something genuinely new in the new covenant, mm-hmm. and that can never be underplayed. Yeah, and and, I, and the reason that conversation is important in my mind, again going back to the synoptics and particularly to Luke, is I, I have a line where I go, Luke 3.16 is as important for soteriology as John 3.16 I quote is. that everywhere, Daryl. Yeah. I quote that line a lot. <laughs> in my own systematic theology, yeah. evangelical theology, I quote that line. And yeah. when, when I teach my course on Luke, I quote that line. Yeah. Yeah, because because what you are getting is John the Baptist telling you the way I am not the Christ. The crowd is speculating that he's the Christ. Only Luke tells us this, mm. and 
And so, you know, the the reply is in all the synoptics, but the context of the reply is only in Luke, and that is the crowd was speculating maybe John is the Messiah. Yeah. Now, and John, said, nope, not me. I'm only baptizing with water. The one coming after me, far stronger than I am, far greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandal, uh, you know, like a slave would. Uh, I'm not worthy to do that in relationship to him. He's the one who will be the Messiah, and the way you'll know it is he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Yeah. And so, so the baptism of the Spirit is the sign not just of the New Age, but who the Messiah is, which is exactly yeah. what Pentecost is preaching. You can know that God, that God has raised Jesus because now the eschatological promise of the Spirit of God has been poured out on the people of God as the sign that the new era has come. Yep. All that's telling you how important all that is. Uh, exactly. And it, the big thing there, too, is that the giver of the Spirit is Jesus, and the one who received the Spirit, it's not the Herodians, it's not the Sadducees, it's not the priests, it's the followers of Jesus. They're the ones who received the Spirit and this blessing of the new age the prophets promised. Yeah, and another thing I do like to say as we talk about this is, um, you know, there's a dispute ongoing in Jerusalem when Pentecost happens, and the dispute is, is Jesus who he claims to be? And there are only two options on the table. Yeah. He's either a blasphemer or he is the one who's been exalted to the side of God. Mm -hmm. Those are your you walk into the voting booth, those are your two boxes. Yeah, there's no third party there's option. There's no third party there's no oh he's a great religious teacher yeah. and he's the bridge between <laughs> the two of us. No well not not in seen in this light. And the resurrection is God's vote in that dispute. God mm. walks into that voting booth and he checks the box that says, I'm going to exalt this one and bring him to my side, showing you who he is, and yep. then I'm going to distribute the spirit so you can know that's who he is, and that's the speech in Acts 2. Yeah, exactly. And so the line in Acts 2.36, therefore let all Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, didn't do it in the order in which the Greek lays out, which says both Lord and Christ, he you know, has made this Jesus whom you crucified. But that's the point. You can know it yeah. because the sign of the eschatological arrival, the promise of God, has been distributed through this Messiah whom God has exalted. And, and Easter becomes the not just the proof that there's life after death, which is the way we often preach it, but the vindication of oh, the Son of exactly, God. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Uh, Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. Um, there's a human being now at the helm of the universe. Jesus mm -hmm. takes his ascended humanity with him, and it's him who gives the Spirit. Yeah, and so. Um, so all of this is designed to show that even though in the context of Judaism there was a grace starting point and a grace hope, the hope of the, the Spirit, that the way in which all that gets uh, triggered, yep. if I can say it that way, is through the mediating work of the Messiah, who is Jesus. Yep. I think that's exactly right. The, I mean, the only thing I think we need to add to this conversation uh, is, you know, often I'm confronted with some rather um, zealous young seminary students who have been taught that the new perspective is completely awful. And I'm usually able to disarm them by asking three simple questions. And the first question I ask them, I say, you know, Paul says in Romans that we believe a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law or what comes next? And I say, what comes, what's the opposite of justification by faith apart from works of the law? And they kind of think, oh, or 
were justified by works or were, were saved by our righteous deeds. Paul's answer is, uh, so the, the answer students give me is usually personal, individual soteriology, how I get saved. Paul's answer is, do we believe a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law or or is God the God of the Jews only? Mm-hmm. So the answer there is at least partly uh, dealing with the issue that God's grace is limited mm-hmm. to one particular people. So the issue is not just legalism. Uh, the issue is, 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 the, is this national status of Israel and that God's grace is listened to them, uh, is, is, is uh, restricted to them. The other second text I love taking students through is in, you know, ask them do they believe, was Christ cursed on the cross for us? And I say, why was Christ cursed on the cross? What was the purpose of Christ being cursed on the cross? And I say, I say, we could be saved, so we could, we could go to heaven. I say, well, that's all great and true. But what does Paul say? Um, Paul says the purpose of Christ being uh, cursed on the cross so that we would be redeemed and the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Whereas people want to focus on, that, again, that personal individual element uh, uh, Paul's answer is redemptive historical, mm-hmm. and it's about bringing Gentiles into this Jewish family of faith. So for me, that's a, that's a good that's another dimension. I think we do need to bring in and affirm in the new perspective that it is it is having bring the discussion of ethnicity, the corporate element, the redemptive historical element that so, is that is usually missing. So it's multi ethnic in its scope, and and you've alluded to what I think is one of the more important verses in Paul, which is I think this is what you're alluding to is Galatians three fourteen exactly. And um, and in the midst of of that conversation, the idea that the gospel was always designed, even from the point of Genesis 12, that Abraham and his seed would be blessed for the sake of the redemption of the world. I yep. mean, when we when we actually ask why is Genesis 12 where it is, it's come after 11 chapters of uh, of devolution. <laughs> As a result of sin, it shows that mankind has a immense need that only God can fix. Yep. And Abraham is the solution, and the blessing of the world through the seed of Abraham is the, is the solution that Genesis 12 uh, deposits and posits as the solution yep. coming down the road. Yeah, and that's what's being fulfilled in Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, for Paul, this is uh, this is the doctrine whereby you know, well, the teaching that God creates a new people with a new status in a new covenant as a foretaste of the new age. That that's what justification is when viewed as a comprehensive category, and it is Paul's license or Paul's Paul's rationale as to why we should have Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians working together. This is the reason nobody gets asked to sit at the at the back of the church bus mm-hmm. because we're all one in Christ Jesus because we're all in Christ. We all share the spirit and this transcends ethnic categories. This transcends the various cultural, religious and ethnic divides that have usually been what's defined who's in and who's out. Okay, now um, I'm going to transition to one kind of final conversation before our time goes away, but I want to summarize where 
we've been. We've, we've talked about the cultural context of the first century and the nature of Judaism, and that Judaism always had, if I can say this, this seed of grace that has been central to what Judaism yeah, is. called a framework of grace. Okay, that's nice. And then, uh, and then we've talked about the role of the Spirit in being central in this, this new layer that comes with what Jesus does that, that changes the game because it brings a new element into the equation. And we've talked about the multi-ethnic nature of this outreach and how that's an important part of what God has done in Christ, emphasizing the corporate dimensions of what's going on. Those things are what we've covered. I've got one more left, and it's going to actually tie this up into a nice knot, and that is the ethics that comes out of this. Yeah. So the way I want to do this is I want to go to Ephesians 2. Oh, that's the place Okay, to go. and I like to start off with um, – in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I call it the Protestant creed. Yeah. Okay, you know. Um, is verse 10 the Catholic creed? Well, okay. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll walk you through and okay. I just want your reaction to this. So we've, got, so we've got 8 and 9, of course, which is salvation is by faith through grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, you know, yeah. I don't, I, there isn't a Protestant worth their salt that doesn't exactly. know those two verses. And then my remark is, well, let's keep reading. Yep. Okay, so there's verse 10, which is actually the explanation for what he's just said. Yep. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yep. So if I ask the next question, which is, what is my salvation for? Why is it that God saves me? Why is it that salvation is by grace? Verse 10 is the answer. I have been shaped by God for good works, which God has actually designed for me to walk in before he saves me and equips me to do so by saving me. Yeah. So far, so good? Yeah. Okay. And now here's the, here is the kicker. This is where the ethics comes in. So what's the first good work? Uh, the first good work is to uh, bring down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and create this new people where Gentiles come in as equal citizens of the Commonwealth of Israel. Which tells you that the goal, uh, at least a goal of salvation, a major goal of salvation, is to change the way people relate to each other. Yes. Yep. Not just how they relate to God, but how they relate to each other. And in that move, all the debates about the difference between the gospel and the pursuit of justice between people mm -hmm. is subsumed. I think that's right. I mean, Tom Wright makes a great point. He says, if Ephesians became as programmatic for the Reformation as Galatians did, the history of Protestant Christianity would be way different. Hmm. You know, and particularly, you can think, you know, what would it have been like uh, through the colonial era, mm -hmm. you know, where, where you know, Western countries are colonizing uh, first peoples around the world, both in you know, North America and also my own Australia, where some horrible things happen. Mm -hmm. What would race relations be like mm -hmm. if we made, you know, Ephesians rather than, you know, certain parts of Galatians, the most central distinctive elements of Protestantism? Uh, you, I mean, you seriously have to wonder what it would be like because we've always had the resources there to do this. Yes, and the, uh, po and the point is that the one of the ways the church shows that it has really been impacted by the Spirit of God mm. is by the way in which peoples relate to one another within the church. That's one of the ways they can model that grace has really struck the earth. And this is where the church can do it very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, I find it ironic where, I don't know in America, but in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, the church is frequently criticized for many of its 
failings and travails, and some of these are often very well-deserved and mm-hmm. sadly earned. But sometimes I think the the criticisms of the church is unfair, and I do find it uh, frustrating when I see these white inner-city progressives all um, attacking um, Christians, and yet we're the ones who are far more ethnically diverse than some of our critics, mm-hmm. and we're the ones who are out there doing the real multiculturalism. Uh, it's certainly in, in, in most of the places where I hang out. Actually, my, my daughter attends a church that is 80% Asian, and one of the things that's affecting the church uh, in Australia at the moment is I think the future of the church in Australia is going to lie largely with the Asian diaspora, mm-hmm. with both the uh, immigrants and, the, and their children are going to probably be the future uh, of, the, of, of the Australian church in the coming generations. But certainly I think multicultural is going to be, uh, multi-ethnic might be a better term, multi-ethnic I think is going to become the new normal uh, uh, in churches like, uh, places like Australia, and, I, and I'm guessing even probably in the, in the United States as well. Yeah, and of course it pictures what Revelation 4 and 5 oh, is all yes. about, which yes. all the tribes and all the nations lifting up the name of Jesus yeah. in, in the end. Yeah, if you do not like multi-ethnic, the afterlife is going to be so disappointing. <laughs> Uh, now that this that we're on such a great track here, you travel the world as I do. Uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, you're here. You are in Australia and in America. I'm an American who's often in Australia, but I'm yeah. all, I've been to South Africa. I've been uh, the last summer by itself. I was in South Africa and Sri Lanka, one right after the other. I'm on the plane flying from South Africa to Sri Lanka, saying, "Am I going to change worlds here? Am I moving from one story and one?" set of realities to a completely different set of realities. And and I'm thinking about this juxtaposition because I'd never been to Sri Lanka before. And I had just gone through a series of lectures talking about the importance of reconciliation in mm. theology. And I land in Sri Lanka not having known very much of its oh, history wow. and yeah. came to discover yeah. that they yeah. had just been through a 30-year civil war yeah. between two ethnic groups yeah. uh, that were in the church. And and I did a lecture on the theology of Luke-Acts that centered on the importance of reconciliation as a part of what that story was about. And all the Sri Lankans came up to me and said, you have no idea how valuable this is for yeah. our context and culture. Exactly, yes. And so this is, this is a global problem. If there's hardly anywhere you go in the world where there are not ethnic strains that are pulling our world apart. Yeah. And the gospel speaks right into it. Uh, that is exactly right. Wherever you go, wherever there's different ethnic groups, you will find some kind of ethnic tension, and you will find an us and them, or people who are being othered, and uh, and you'll you'll see all sorts of prejudices and biases, which are sadly sometimes justified using religious capital mm-hmm. of some form. Uh, but Christians who are soaked in Scripture, who hold to the worldview of the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, and the apostles will always resist that. Yeah, and always I, resist that. And then I joke that uh, Jesus may say it, Paul, uh, Jesus may say it, John the Evangelist may say it, Peter may say it, John the Baptist may say it, uh, the Evangelist Luke may say it, but it doesn't count unless Paul says it. And yeah. Paul says it in Ephesians. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and so this is this, this is such an emphasis. It's actually one of the strongest strands of emphasis running through the entirety of the New Testament. I know, I know, and which goes to show again the the question of what must I do to be saved. While it's real, it's there, it's important. It's the start. It's the Stop it, and it doesn't yeah. end up being the controlling question. It's who are God's people, yeah. and how do you know, and, and how do how do we learn to live with difference? I mean, that's what the last quarter of Romans is about. How do you learn to live? 
with difference? How do we worship people with different convictions about, you know, food or or wine or which day to observe, we observe? And the symbol that 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 the new age has arrived, that we're the new creation is here in seed form, is the fact that you've got these Jews, these barbarians, these Greeks, these Romans, these Scythians, these Lydians, all sitting together around the same fellowship table, praising the one Lord. And it's keeping uh, what is most central, most central, and then figuring out how that works on the things that are more on the periphery. That, that's exactly. You're doing a theological triage, knowing what the what the what is what is central and what is peripheral, and where you can leave things for a matter of conviction. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for coming in and 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 talking about this with us. Uh, I think it's been kind of a fascinating journey from theology over to application in thinking about what the new perspective is about, uh, the value of the comprehensiveness of grace or the framework of grace, as you said it, the value of the uh, ethnic layer of what's involved, the centrality of how the coming of the Spirit uh, is the mark of the eschatological layer and the new reality that is going on, on top of what's going on, and then finally, the multi-ethnic dimension of where this is designed to take us as the people yeah. of God, which opens up the church to have a possibility of a powerful testimony by being a place where different peoples can gather and have a sense of oneness in the midst of doing so, because the God of the universe has invaded their lives and changed them, not only how they see themselves, but how they see others. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you, Daryl. Yeah. And we thank you for being a part of the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. If you have a topic you'd like to consider for a future episode, please email us at the table at dts.edu. We do take these seriously. We'll match them up with people who we think can speak to the topic. And one day at this table, you may see the topic that you propose. We look forward to your suggestions. And again, thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll be a part of the table again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.